Hello there and welcome to the 9 o'clock show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the week. Dundalk woman Maria Doyle Koosh talks about life-changing moments and why she will receive the Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad. Jerry Halliwell Horner chatted to me about her young adult novel Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen. Albert Perris joined me in studio. His local history book is called A Ramble About Tala History, People and Places. Comedian Adrian Ebenson talks about his life story in his book Berserker. On Friday's show, Claire Dunn stars in Roddy Doyle's adaptation of Peter Pan in the Dublin Gate Theatre. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed. My guest is a Dundalk native, but she's joining me from her home in eastern France. And she's been chosen as one of 13 people who will receive the Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad for 2023. She has quite a story. Good morning, Maria Doyle-Couche. How are you? Good morning, Brendan. Good morning, Ireland. And I'm grand and I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Thank uh, you so much. I, I, I fell down a YouTube warren with you last night. I'm fascinated. So, first of all, let's talk about Eurovision 1985 before we talk about why you're being awarded. Go on. Tell me about Eurovision. <laughs> well, 1985, mm-hmm. um, I was chosen. I did the National Song Competition. You know, at the time, it was just unbelievable to be even picked to do the National Song Contest. Of course. I sang a Brendan Graham song. And I Brendan sang Graham, last, just I to say, hit. just Brendan Graham wrote a couple of winners, Rock and Roll Kids, The Voice. Yeah, you, you wrote as well, You Raised Me Up. You know, that a wonderful song, song, You Raised yeah. Me Up. Brilliant. So, mm, I mean, this unbelievable. is a, So, 1985, this is a, a, a life changing moment for you, right? Yeah, and it's live. You know, everything at the time was live with the orchestras, and it was just unbelievable to do that, you know, especially where I was coming from, you know, from Dundalk. And, you know, I had no managers, and I was doing it all by myself, and Daddy was helping me at the time. Now, Maria, before you tell and me more of the story, can we do something for you? Indulge a Eurovision fan here who actually, I watched the, your performance three times having read some of the more of the information you're going to tell us in a minute. Can we play a little clip of your performance? Would you mind? Oh, I'd love that. I'd love it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Wait until the weekend comes Then we'll have what time it takes To sort it out To see it through Wait until the weekend comes Sunday's over Change your mind and make you laugh about me and you. Oh, now. How's it feel hearing that? When have you listened to that recently? And, and- Oh, I do with the children. It brings a lot of emotion to me because, you know, I left Ireland, you know, I emigrated. And I suppose when I stood on that stage, I was first on, you know, Ireland was open the competition that year. And I didn't really know what was ahead of me, Brendan, you know, as a child, well, as a teenager. um, I remember when I came home, I had no family at that because at the time, you know, it just wasn't the thing to do. And they wouldn't have had the money to come over to the Eurovision in Sweden at the time. And Mammy watched it um, in a council house on a wee TV screen. And I remember I rang, she rang me from the neighbour's house because she didn't even have a phone and she said Maria you had stars in your eyes tonight and all those memories come back you know it's a bit like the words of the song so it just brings a lot of emotion to me Brendan a lot and and there's a, a big element about your person that was is fascinating about what, just even watching that performance first of all <clears throat> your taffeta dress is so reminiscent of the time and you look extraordinary on stage and you and I don't look blind well <laughs> you can see it well tell me <laughs> tell me about that that's just fascinating to me 
Well, my lovely little Tafford address came from Penny's. I paid £30 for it at the time. Yeah, I, I didn't have any big designers like you making me a lovely dress. <laughs> and um, and I loved it. And then we pair of, we pair of shoes that I bought as well in Dunn stores. And um, the, the whole situation was that I went blind when I was nine. Now, in the 70s, there was, there was nothing for you if you were blind or if you were different, and especially if you were a wee girl. And they sent me to a blind school to become um, a telephone operator. Now, I didn't want to become a telephone operator, so I, rang, I ran away from Dublin and I made it all the way home to Dundalk in County Loud. I had a wee medal around my neck, a wee holy that I got at my communion. And I remember I used to hold on to that wee medal the whole way down to Dundalk. And I was 10, Brendan, when I rang away, ran away from St Mary's School for the Blind. And as I held on to that medal, I'd look up to the sky and I'd say, please, God, don't let them find me. They didn't. So from that day on, Brendan, I decided not to be blind. I didn't talk about it. I didn't speak about it. And I pretended to be this little girl that could see, you know, and that. So my mind can see like my brain. It can see so I can visualize very quickly when I'm in a place for over maybe five, ten minutes. I know everything straight away. I have a great memory. You actually Uh, lost your sight at age nine. Is that correct? Nine, nine. exactly. So nine and a half. I was at school. Can I ask I how? Did you lose your, how did you lose your sight? Well, what happened is I was just at school, like it was autumn, back to school, delighted to be back at school. And all of a sudden I was just looking at the teacher, the blackboard, and she was writing on the blackboard. And everything just started going really fuzzy and weird, like fog. Imagine like a thick fog coming in from everywhere. So I put up my hand and I said, Miss, there's something wrong. I just can't distinguish anything anymore. And uh, she said, well, go on home. And I went home and Mammy held, I don't know if you remember this old salt containers at the time. And I think they still exist. You know, the red and white tall salt, table salt. And Mammy held that up and she said, Read that. Read what's on that, Maria. And I said, Mommy, I can't. So she took me up to the eye in your hospital. Now, I didn't know what blind meant. You know, when you're nine, nobody around me was blind. Um, nobody had bad eyesight. I didn't know you could go blind. I thought this was like uh, Doctor Who was going to come out of his telephone box and say I was part of a show, like, you know? Yeah. Um, it was just, I didn't know what was really happening. And then within within six weeks, that was it. It was over. Uh, 95% blind, leaving me with just a wee bit of light, which is unbelievable. I'm still, I still know when it's dark and I still know when it's the day. And I, I think that's a miracle. So you've just given me two big pillars of strength. One is that a year later, with your medal in your hand, running away from the blind school and getting back to Dundalk. And the second is performing first at the 1985 Eurovision, probably when Eurovision was at its absolute peak, when it was getting... Oh, it was at its... Yeah. But when people watch the performance, and I urge you to go to YouTube and watch your 1985 performance, you take camera direction flawlessly because you didn't tell people you were blind, did you, at the Eurovision? No, no, no. The only woman that knew about it was the the director, you know, the the producer. Mm. There was a big, huge uh, cross on the stage where the backing singers would leave me. And she knew, you know, even without me talking about it, by the way they were guiding me and they'd bring me onto the stage. I did my same performance every time because every morning for a week you rehearse your song. And because I was first on, I rehearsed at eight o'clock every morning. So I did my same little actions and my same little look. And I would wait until the weekend comes and you can catch the tide. And I would put my... So she knew exactly what I was going to do. And she told the cameras what to do. 
Wow. So it was wonderful. So it made it look like I could see. And I uh, know like Terry Wogan, because he introduced it on BBC like he always does. Mm-hmm. He never guessed that, that that girl singing was blind. And that was a battle for me. It yes. was, And it was, uh, and I actually won it, if you know what I mean, Brendan. I won it. And especially when, I hope you talk about where I actually came from. And at the time, I didn't speak about that either because yeah. I was ashamed. Of course. And I never spoke about me and Mammy and where we, where I was born. So and it's a shame I didn't at the time. So tell us about that. Where were you born? And, and tell us about what, what the start of your life, because your life could have been very different, couldn't it? Oh, it could have been totally different, but maybe in a worse way, I think, because um, in actual fact, what happened in the 60s, Mammy got pregnant out of wedlock. And I suppose we all know now in Ireland what that meant in the 60s and the 70s. And she was sent to London, Brendan, uh, to hide her pregnancy. And two priests picked her up in London and they brought her back and she was incarcerated in one of uh, Ireland's Madeleine laundries. Now, I know we call the mother and baby homes today. I don't like calling them that, Brendan, because what happened there and what Mammy went through, um, a home is where you're loved and where you feel safe. And it was the opposite. So I was born in a Madeleine laundry and Mum was there for 10 months. And that's where I started my life. And I was called Stephanie. My name was Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, they wanted Mammy to adopt me and give me up. And as they would hold the papers up to, you know, the adoption papers, mm-hmm. the nuns would kind of point at the papers and they'd say, you've nothing to offer your child. You'll be able to do nothing for her. You need to adopt, sign these papers. But there's another battle, another Irish woman that I'd love to say hello to today, my mammy Eileen. And um, she fought like a lion to keep me and she didn't sign those papers. She was willing to stay even two years because after two years, the children were automatically adopted. Um, But she put up that fight and she didn't adopt me. My nanny Isabel from Dundalk at the time taught Mammy was in, in, in England. And um, when she found out that um, her daughter wasn't in England, she did, she, she tore down mountains and rivers and everything <laughs> to find out what her daughter was. And she found us. Wow. And when she found us, she signed us out. She signed us out of the home, out of the Madeleine Laundry. And that was it. I was free. Mammy and me were out. And um, and that was the beginning of my story as Stephanie. And then I became Maria because my nanny had 12 children and the youngest was Stephanie. And she said to Mammy, there's no way can we have two Stephanies under this roof. We have to call her something else. And Mammy said, we call her Maria in memory of of her father, her Spanish father, Teodoro Gonzalez Gonzalez. So that's another twist in your in fascinating life story. So when your sight began to fail, you're di- at nine years of age. You also then found out who your biological that father was. That my father wasn't my father. Exactly. What happened there? <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, well, my daddy, God love him. Can I just say, Maria, your story is unbelievable it's an incredible story and you're so your strength is shining through and I'm just I'm, I'm sorry if I'm asking too many questions but I'm fascinated by it and uh, so Patrick McCabe plaster the best plaster in Ireland he could make a wall as smooth as a baby's arse that's oh. what they used to say about him we let you away with that all the way that's fr- you're French come on go ahead <laughs> that's what they'd say it was really really lovely lovely and um he came up to the Ainear Hospital with Mammy and all the other my other siblings, you know, because I was the eldest. And they all had to go through all these tests because they couldn't figure this out, why I was going blind and oh. how sudden it was. So they were doing all these tests and they did all these tests on Daddy, you know, the genetics and everything. And they said to Mammy, listen, listen Mrs. McCabe, you have to tell us 
the truth. Um, we can't find any any proof in the blood test that Patrick is Maria's father. Now, you'll have to let us know because if he is her father, your other children will have the same risk as Maria of going blind. Wow. Because you need the two, the two parents have to have this gene that I was born with. Now, obviously, Mammy had it. She's a, it's called a porter son. Um, I don't know what, see, I'm forgetting my English. She's a carrier. She's a carrier of the disease. And my Spanish daddy was a carrier of the disease. And the two of them give me the the bad gene. And that's what made me blind. But because Patrick obviously wasn't my father and the father of my other brothers and sisters, they're all perfect. There was no risk for them. So it's the professor told me, actually, that he explained it by explaining to me that I was like a little grain of sand on a beach in Ireland. And he said, now, Maria, I want you to imagine that you're this little grain of sand on the beach, on the shore. Now, pick it up. That's you. Now, anywhere you want to go on that beach, pick up another little grain of sand. That's your mammy. Now, pick up another little grain of sand. That's your daddy. And those two little grains of sand made you. You're very, very special, Maria. And I was listening with my eyes, you know, wide open. And he said, now, the difference here is the little grain of sand that you picked up, that's your daddy. Well, it's not this man here beside you, Patrick McCabe. His name is Teodoro Gonzalez Gonzalez, wow. and he lives in Spain. And when he said that to me, Brendan, I started thinking that my father was Zorro. You know, I was imagining <laughs> like Zorro. <laughs> so I thought I was magic. The, and as well as that, Brendan, before I lost my sight, which is absolutely it's weird. It's amazing. I used to look at my bedroom window and I was fascinated by the stars. And the more I'd look at them before I lost my eyesight, the more I felt someone up there had a plan for me. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that until today. Look what's happening today, Brendan. Yeah. You know, it's it's like my life is like, it looks like a circle in my mind, full of events and st- circumstances. And these same events, some happy, some sad, they're actually bringing me home to Ireland now on the 16th of January, where I'm going to get this a presidential distinguished service award and um so let's not gloss just, over that now just give me yeah, i want to yeah, i want to tell sorry. me about that no 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 it's perfect but you're, you're bringing just because you're coming back from france so you moved to france in 92 because you met a french man emmanuel couche fell in love I fell in love yes. and you have children now in france and you've been there ever since 32 years i arrived i emigrated like so many of us irish i emigrated we were in the recession at the time in ireland my husband couldn't find work at the time i wanted to start a family so i got pregnant straight away and then um, because he was French he said we'll have probably a better chance getting a job in France so I emigrated over here with him arrived in Gare de l'Est which is kind of like O'Connell Street Station but 50 times bigger Mm. and I remember standing there with all my lifelong belongings in a few suitcases and my little baby in my tummy and once again I remember looking up to the heavens Brendan and I said I am going to do in this country exactly what I did in Ireland now, I suppose if you were to put a bet on me at that time, the odds would have been, what, 60 million to one because there's 60 million people here in France. But And I moved to that wee small village, like, I suppose it'd be like moving to Annie Gasson in County Loud. It's like pff, one 500 people in it in the right. middle of nowhere, a rural village. And I had seven 
beautiful children. Oh, congratulations. And I, seven, and I reared them and I, I did all I could to bring them up in music and the culture of the Irish culture and the French culture. And as soon as the little one was nine, I started to, um, to try and find a way to get back on stage. And because singing is my life, even though my children are my life and still are, singing is just part of me. It's, I can't not sing or I would never be happy. And so, so people I in France will know you from the French vo- the Voice, but also our Irish people will know you from The Voice in 2016. The TV show, yeah, The Voice. Yeah, that's when yeah. I started. Yeah. yeah, that's when I started. Now, I hadn't been on stage for ages and you know the way The Voice is. I, could, I was old enough to be all the mothers over <laughs> there, you know, so I was a bit lost. I was a bit like a sore thumb uh, in The Voice at the time and I wasn't used to that way of going on. You know, it was it's a whole new ball game that those kind of competitions. But it, it was a great teaching for me. I learned what to do and I was ready then for the French version. But before the French version, why I was picked for the French version is I gave a TED talk. Now, these are kind of talks you give to motivate people. Yeah, no, I know, amazing. And at, at that TED talk, there was the director of, um, an editorial director here in France of from Plum, a major um, publishing company. And he saw me on the TED talk and he invited me to Paris. Now, when I went to Paris, I felt like I was going, I was Lois Lane and I was going to the Daily Planet, you know, to have this big interview. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I really did. And that's what it was like. My daughter Brilliant. told me that with books everywhere. So you got back and on stage and, and I'm fascinated by this because we started with the Eurovision, but you'd love to do the Eurovision again. My dream since uh, since 25, since I came to France, I wrote a song when I was pregnant, actually, with Shannon. Now, Shannon is 27 years of age. It's called Live for Love. Now, I wrote it especially for the Eurovision and it's a ballad. It's a, it's just, and it's just my son that accompanies me in it. Gorgeous. Now, it wouldn't cost RTE a lot of money to put me on <laughs> you the for national the song. Good woman. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Has to be done. <laughs> and I just, me and my son, even just to sing it on national RTE. And you know, the Eurovision's in Sweden this year. Oh, how ironic. Or next year, like. Full Wouldn't circle. Be, you're, like, you're full of circles. Yes. Yeah, very good. You've got it, but listen, before we, run out, before we run out of time, tell listeners the main reason you've been honoured the Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad for 2023. You're getting your award from the President in Ireland in January. So tell us why you're receiving that award, please. Okay, so I just got word the embassy here in France, um, the Irish ambassador, um, he just rang me and Niall Burgess, his name is, and I thought he was ringing me just to invite me to sing at the embassy for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, Maria, I have a very important news to announce to you. Um, Michael D. Higgins will be presenting you with a medal, the presidential medal for inclusion and equality. And there wow. you go again, Brendan. For somebody that was completely excluded and hadn't in, anything to do with inequality from her birth until for years and years and years, I'm getting this medal for inclusion and equality. And why? Because I'm the ambassadors of a blind association here in France and I go all around France and I give conferences and I'm on radios and TV shows. And I actually went to the government um, la- a month ago where I was at a special round table event where we're trying to um, register Braille, Louis Louis Braille, I suppose we say Braille, Braille in yeah. French, that invented Braille with those six little dots that um, make people blind, able to read and write all over the world. And we're trying to register it in um, the Lunisco World Heritage. Great. So I'm part of that. And um, Congratulations. it's just wonderful that I'm coming home and, and that I'm going to be bringing Mammy with me. Amazing. The, That's to, wonderful. Yeah. 
I'm going to be bringing her to um, Oris on Nuktohan. That's it, that's yeah. That's just unbelievable. Listen, Maria Doyle, you could enjoy that award and the very best of luck with everything else you do. You're a magic chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brendan. And listen, Brendan, if there's any chance you're lending me a dress there for that event, no problem. I, I would be delighted. <laughs> I'll get them to hook us up here. Absolutely delighted to. Of course I will. Okay, please. I love that. Don't forget, text 51551. Now, I'm uh, speaking directly to a cohort of friends of mine who are listening uh, very excitedly. Calm down, be calm, because Jerry Halliwell is on the phone. Hello, Jerry. Hello. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Can you I'm good. Me? How are you? I'm really, listen, thank you so much for taking our call. So, first of all, I just want to get this out of the way. I'm a huge fan, huge fan. I, I actually spent about a year and a half teaching the dance routine to look at you. Or look at me and look at you. Now look at me saying, getting the name wrong. But I'm, very, I'm a big, big fan. So thanks so much for talking with, for me this morning. And pop star turned author. Um, we're here to talk really about uh, Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen, your new book. Congratulations. Thank you. Well done. Um, so uh, it's a story of a teenage orphan who attends a fantastical boarding school and it's aimed at uh, a, a, a sort of slightly older audience than you've been writing for, for teenage girls. Is that fair to say? say it's to everyone actually you know I think you know it's it's I would say from 10 upwards like my husband's read it like a, tw- a 20 year old can read a 30 year old whatever Brilliant. the age actually because it's like a massive adventure story but there's sort of nuts and bolts of imp- uh, finding your your own power if you like history yeah. if you like conservation but it's a modern day story but flooded with like this this feeling of finding the courage you never knew you had Wonderful. Uh, and it's on the great cr- tradition of, right, of stories based in boarding schools. There's a lovely, a pretty pr- British tradition, like the Worst Witch and Mallory Towers of St. Clair's. So it's based, so there's kind of a fr- freedom to it. Well, I don't know what it is. And it's funny you say that. There is that sort of love of, um, of uh, we think about those. I always had that fantasy. I think it's because I read a lot of Enid Blyton and there was always like that, um, in a boarding school. But this is what I, this is the difference of it. Okay, so first of all, it's set on Bloodstone Island. Bloodstone Island, imagine a Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. but for endangered animals, okay? Then secondly, the, the boarding school, okay, is for polymath, smartest kids. But it was built 500 years ago uh, by Queen Elizabeth I in honor of her mother, Anne Boleyn, who was shamed for being smart. So Queen Elizabeth I, she goes, right, I'm going to get married. My heirs are going to be the ideas from these students. Okay, so she builds this school. And this school is entrenched with Anne Boleyn's history because Anne Boleyn was smart and brilliant. But, you know, she was shamed by her misogynistic pig, Henry VIII's husband, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so um, Anne Boleyn makes this rule book, okay, for her daughter. She's got four rules just before she's executed. And then... Uh, Elizabeth uses these rules and becomes the greatest monarch. And then 500 years later, now, um, Rosie Ross gets sent to this school and she faces bullies, these massive challenges, all sorts, okay, like treacherous on this island. She uses these four rules, which are given to her by, by the ghost queen of Anne Boleyn. So it's, it's kind of flooded with history and adventure. And it's page turner. So uh, uh, the reason I kind of zoned in on the the younger audience is because I gave it to my niece who's 14 and she's a prolific reader yeah. to give me a review. 
Would you like to hear what she said? Okay. Yeah, she loved it. Yeah. Her name is Emily Riley, Courtney, and she's listening. And uh, she was very nervous. And she's uh, she's actually, she she read it in two days. She's only 14. And it's a big book. Like, it's a good, it's a confident reader's book. It's a really good book. So Emily said, 14 years of age, from Ireland, I found its mysteries intriguing. And they were used so well, I wanted to keep turning the page. I thought the characters were really interesting and likeable. I loved reading about both them and the school. I also thought the book's use of English history and the history of Anne Boleyn was really interesting. I didn't know some of the facts included in the book about her and her family tree and had fun learning more about her in her own right more than that she was just Henry VIII's dead wife. It was a refreshing and compelling book and I can't wait to read more. <laughs> Five stars. Oh wow, Emily! Oh my God, that is so flattering. Thank you. Oh my God. You know what, Emily, one say 14 is the age of power. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is I mean, this is Rosie Frost. She's thirteen, and she's and then number two, she turns fourteen. And we actually say that it's the age of power. And you know, for the fact that she is the target person that I wrote it for. So it, this is amazing, and it thrills me. Thank you so much. Oh, that's brilliant! Wow, uh, what a review. That's but- more flattering than anything oh, somebody wonderful. like Emily oh, brilliant it. and she really loved it she really enjoyed it um, and, but also I mean I, I kind of I read through it quickly over the weekend as well and uh, the the what the way you've just described the story makes total sense in your beautiful way and your Jerry Halliwell brain because it actually all adds up it's really clear what you're trying to say where did you get the idea from? Do you know what I I've always loved writing. I've, I'm a complete bookworm. I love books, okay? And, I, and also movies. And I always think it, it, sometimes in life we find the courage through other characters, you know, that we might not get it from, you know, from life, but we get it through reading or something that's, you know, from characters. And so I thought, you know what? The world needs a new hero, mm-hmm. someone ordinary, and that's not perfect. And... And I'm just a very, very curious person. You know, I'll read about anything. And I thought, okay, so I developed characters first. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a story that really helps people, that anyone that feels bullied or marginalized in their life, Mm -hmm. okay? But, and you have this character that suddenly, you know, she has to face up to things that feel awkward and, and terrifying and scared. And then comes out the other side going, all right, do you know what? I'm not perfect, but I'm all right. And, um, and I love history. I love animals. So it's, kind of, it's a bit by bit. It took me about seven years to write it because it was the first one of that. You said it's a chunky book, but it is kind of, it's for the reluctant reader. If you're not a big reader, you can still, you know, page turn on it. I did that purposely. Yeah, and, um, so it took you about seven years. You were always there. Seven years. Yeah, I wonder, like I can't help but think, was the story of Anne Boleyn at the genesis of this, a a woman bullied for being smart? Yes, do you know what? Are you having your breakfast, Jerry? Rosie was was first, okay, the character of Rosie was first. Right. But um, when I thought, okay, I'm going to give the DNA of this book to Queen Elizabeth, I thought maybe, maybe first, and then I thought, well, what about her mother mm. and then when I mentioned that to someone they went oh no 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 don't do that no 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 she's not like don't I thought okay let's unpack this and the more I learned about her the more I thought oh my god this woman was 
shamed for being smart. If this was on the present day, right, um, the people around her would have been me too. They would have been like, that would not be okay. So I thought this woman needs redemption. Well done. Anne Boleyn, I've just been told, has Irish connections. From She's from Car- it's some relation in Carrick on Shore in Tipperary. No doubt listeners will tell us the truth about that and shortly at text 51551, of course. So, yeah, she needed redemption. It's, he's a fa- it's a fascinating history woven through this story. And it's really interesting that my niece picked that out. She really enjoyed that redemption of Anne Boleyn in the story. Yeah, I thought, let's look at this. Let's stop... Like making her out to be such a like an easy target, you know, someone that is, you know, she was interesting, beautiful, you know, captivating. And okay, let's shame her. So what about this? What about if we actually look at her from a different angle and celebrate her? Do you know what? She actually believed in reform, you know, like the NHS. Yeah. Like, and then one of the reasons, and one, what I discovered was the reason why she wasn't liked by Cromwell, and that was Henry VIII's sort of henchman was because she was like trying to navigate the crown's money towards looking after the poor. Wow. And, like, and he didn't like it. Yeah. So things like that. But, you know, but that's sort of injected into this fast-paced adventure. You know, it's like Squid Game when you read it. And they, <laughs> Rosie Frost goes through these challenges that are awful. Yeah. And through the Falcon Queen games. And they are quite vicious. Um so it's fast-paced action adventure at the so, same time. So what are the messages for girls like my niece in this book? I think, you know, there's a four Falcon Queen rules, okay, which Queen Elizabeth I used, which Anne Boleyn gave her. And they have the four messages, which are really useful. Okay, and the first one is have courage. Take the chance you fear the most. Sometimes we're going to have to show up and we're terrified. The second one is united we stand. Okay, I'm going to lean on you to help me. I can't do this alone, okay? Number three is never give up. Um, Be the light. Serve your kingdom. You'll win your fight. It basically means, do you know what? Don't give up and and be of service and it will be gas in your tank. I'm doing this for Emily. I wrote this book for Emily, not just for me. I wrote it for Emily and all those kids out there and people out there. But, and it sort of drives you on. Number four, okay, this is a big one. This is what you live by, okay? It says, to thine, to thine own self be true. Mm-hmm. If you don't like these rules, make up your own. <laughs> and that Shakespeare, who also went to Hebrew Bridge, this school, is that, you know, we, sometimes we've just got to live in our own lane. Not everyone's going to like us. We can't please everybody. And sometimes we've just got to be ourselves. And if I want Emily just to be the best Emily that she can be. That's it. Brilliant. Oh, that's wonderful. Listen, uh, no spoilers, but in the very first chapter, uh, Rosie's taken out of class and told tragically that her mother has died. And it's, a, yeah. it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a jolt in the very first chapter, isn't it? Um, but you're drawing yeah. from personal experience there, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I always think turn your poop to fertiliser. Make it mean something. Some of the pain that you've been through in life. And, you know, in lots of stories, there are orphans. Okay, that's the truth. But I thought, let's make this unairbrushed. Let's make it real. And I've experienced losing my pet, uh, father at a very young age, and it was horrible. And, and so I drew on that, and that opening chapter when she's sitting there in school and, and the teacher comes and she gets pulled out of class and told that her mother is dead and, and what happens. And that happened to me. It's awful. Oh, I'm and, sorry. Um, so I sort of used all that, that pain and that sort of disruption 
into that into that opening chapter. Amazing. Uh, I just got a text here. Anne Boleyn, uh, Anne Boleyn's mother was one of the Butler family of Ormond Castle in Carrick and Shore in Ireland. Isn't that interesting? That's from Joe and Tremor. Thanks, Joe. Interesting. She's got a bit of a. That's where she gets her cheekbones from, probably. Oh, that's it. I'll take. We'll take that from Jerry Halliwell. So yeah, um, I think I, I. Go on. Sorry. No, I think Irish people have got beautiful cheekbones. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to disagree with you. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, this whole it body helps. hangs off these it cheekbones, ha- darling. So tell yeah. me this. Tell me this. Um, you, you really have. You know, you have your own. Jerry Halliwell Lane that you forged yourself and it was you know and as a fan and I've followed your entire career and I'm of that generation that, oh, thank that you. loves you really loves you and, and thinks you're amazing and you've popped up again in other parts of culture now and I the you know the Formula One documentary series that went out that just kind of changed the the, the broader appeal of, of of Grand Prix you know um, that you know that you're, you're popped up there you popped up in, in Robbie's documentary and it actually just I have to say I just watched that recently in that documentary I got a real sense that you should be making documentaries you were in, interviewing him really well behind the camera and not, you know you're, you're very inquisitive aren't you? Well I, I like people do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think everyone's got a story yeah. you know I was, it, I'm fascinated by um, for anyone whether it's the Duchess or the Dustman you know, everybody's got a story and we all learn. It's very sort of primal. We learn from each other, yeah. you know, from, from back in the day in the caveman stories. We learn, I'm learning from you and it's really nice to share. Yeah. Do you know what I went, I have to say, you have got the best museum in the world in Ireland, the Titanic Museum. Oh, yeah, in Belfast, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh my God! I have to. My son is obsessed with the Titanic. I was obsessed with the Titanic. That's Leon. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I love it as well. But thanks to him, and so I took him to that Titanic museum. And I know it's on your own back door. So sometimes when we don't we don't go to our own museums when they're near us. But I have to say, it is the best museum I've ever been to from start to finish. I was like, Ireland, you're ahead of the game in engineering. It's yeah. incredible for a start, then get the way it showed, you know, how all these people came together and then showing the beautiful architecture, then the horrible, tragic story. And then it shows you what you found afterwards, you know, all the photographic evidence, you know, at the bottom of the sea and all the, you know, they've got deck checked and, you know, what what brought down the Titanic? It wasn't just one thing. And... I was so moved after, and that's just sharing the story. Wow, and that's I'm, on I'm your ashamed to say I, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm, I'm actually confessing this to Jerry Halliwell. I've never been to the Titanic Museum. I'm now going to go. You've just, you've just sold it to me. And I was a, as a kid, I was it's obsessed. It's so good. Is it? It's so good. Uh, really, so, really good. I just I'm, want to ask you. It's quite overwhelming, though. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Quite overwhelming. So, uh, seven years in the making, Rosie Frost. Uh, how do you feel about her being out in the world now? You excited? Um, I, it's when someone like Emily gives me that feedback, I'm so pleased because that's the point. Um, it's done really, really well in America. It's a New York bestseller, and I'm like, oh my god, that's incredible! Amazing. But you know, fundamentally, it's about the the Emilys of this world that you know to really find that courage and 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 it's thrilling. I'm just finishing number two. Oh, congratulations! And, um, and it's funny because. 
And I really mentioned that 14 is the age of power. It really is, because you're just, the wheels are just turning. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You're dropping. It's almost like the stabilizers are coming off your bike and you're, 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 you're moving into that young adult. It's, listen, you know, you're it, it seeing also, the world differently. Let's call a spade a spade. It Scream's movie as well. I'm just going to put that out there into the universe, all right? Can I read a text to you? Somebody just yeah, thank you so much. You are so supportive of me. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, I'm a much. big fan. You're amazing. And I just, you know, I, I think you're having a, a, a beautiful era in your public life as well. So congratulations to you. Lovely text. Hi, Brendan. Thank oh, you for... Thank, thank you. That's so nice. Thank you for your marvellous interview with Jerry thank Halliwell. Her you. book sounds wonderful. In relation to the importance of courage, there's a wonderful quotation. This is a text I just sent in. Courage calls to courage everywhere. This is a quotation from Melissant uh, Fawcett, a suffragette. Also, well done to your niece, Emily. Her book review was brilliant. Thank you, uh, Jen. Isn't that lovely? That's a lovely text to get in. Uh, Jerry Halliwell, good luck with uh, Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen. It's out in every good bookshop now. Have a, a very Merry Christmas and the, a song I used to uh, teach a dance class to uh, Jerry Halliwell. Look at me. Thank you, Jerry. Happy Christmas. Oh, thank you so much. This is brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Now, my first guest is, like myself, a Tala native with a huge interest in its history. And he's written a book called A Ramble About Tala, History, People and Places. And it's been a labour of love for a long time. Is that right? You're very welcome. Albert Paris, how are you? Good morning, Brendan. Good. Thanks for having me. I I see we're of a similar vintage. Yes. Yeah, I think you're a little bit older. Oh, my God. That was right in there, Albert. That's typical Tala for you there. <laughs> yes, I was born in 1971. I read by your notes you were born in 72. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're very welcome. So, uh, we're both from Tala, so we don't want to go down a wormhole of everything we know about Tala. Sure. Uh, so, you were born in Tala? No. You yes, okay, yeah, I was yeah. born in Tala in 72, I suppose, the, the child of a couple that had just moved in there 18 months earlier, like about 10,000 other couples that would move in over the following decade into what had been a small country village. And from 1970 to 1980 was, was pretty much transformed into an urban landscape. Uh, probably like your own folks, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. They moved in 1979, 80. Okay. Uh, to Kingswood. Okay. Which is on the, sort of, I was explaining, Kingswood is on the border between Tala and Clondalkin. So when we were going, yeah. my mother would often say, because I went to school in Clondalkin. Ah. So we would always, that's where our friends were. So okay. And we were on the Ballymount Lane, which is the dividing line between right. Tala and Clondalkin. So that's we, right. our post would come to Dublin 22, but we would vote in Dublin 24. Ah. Well, Dad would tell us that. Those yeah, stories. yeah. It's kind of funny. So we were like border. We were outside. Yeah, a, a bit like the writer Catherine Tynan. Uh, yeah. She lived up that neck of the woods and, and Tala has claimed her as its own. But in reality, she was in the parish of Clendalkin. Ah. She was born in Dublin, lived in the parish of Clendalkin and died in London. But we have a plaque up in Tala village celebrating <laughs> the great Tala writer. So when I was growing up in Tala, there was a, a kind of a, a statistic bandied around that there was more people in Tala than in Cork, the biggest city. Was that true at one point? Um, not sure about Cork certainly Limerick throughout Limerick. the 80s it was yeah. generally compared to the Limerick so there's, there's as many people in Tallinn now as there is in the city of Limerick okay. um, which was probably was true yeah, yeah. Um, it lacked I suppose the facilities that, that a city lacked that had grown up on, you know over hundreds of years yeah. um, Tallinn literally developed on the scale that we, we knew it in the 80s it developed really from about 1970 to 1980 yeah. um, it went from a population of, of maybe a thousand people to 40,000 people in 10 years and would continue to grow at that pace for the next for the next 10 so it's a, a, a remarkable spot, but you actually, you, you, you go back further into the social history of it. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Well, in this book, I suppose it had to start somewhere and it actually starts with Noah's Ark. <laughs> Why not? We, we had to start somewhere and that seemed like as good a place as any. Which is great. And I, I'm, I, my favourite place in the world other than Ireland is Greece. 
Right. So t- tell us about the arc then. Yeah, well, I suppose the, the, the foundation story of Tala, if you like, is, is the story of Parthalon, uh, a Greek prince that tried to overthrow his father's rule. This is 4,000 years ago or thereabouts. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, tried to overthrow his father's rule in Greece and was banished by his father. Yeah. So himself and his followers set sail and they, they wind up in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, in Ballyshannon, of all places. Um, and after about 300 years, um, they settled closer to Dublin between Tala and Hoth. Um, but after 300 years of the Partholonians arriving, they're wiped out by a great plague uh, and all 9,000 Partholonians are killed in one week, uh, 5,000 men and 4,000 women. And they're buried in a plague grave or Tavlocht and the name Tala comes from Tavlocht, meaning plague grave, uh, referring back to the Partholonians. Now, there's an element of legend and myth and mythology. Uh, this comes from from uh, the Book of Leinster and, and, and five and six hundred year old manuscripts. Um, but it's the earliest reference we have in writing to the story of Tala. Uh, and in fact, the, the history of Tala is entwined with the history of Ireland in, in that sense. In so Tavlock is, is, means? Plague grave. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very interesting. And I suppose if you look at the hills around Tala, and there's a little section on that in terms of, of cysts and mounds and passage graves and, and all the rest of it, and certainly in the 1800s and 1700s, they're a lot more obvious and a lot more visible around Tala than they are today. But on the top of Tala Hill, on the top of Mount Pellier, um, and, and throughout the hills surrounding uh, the district, um, there is there is prehistoric. So, so what, I mean, you're, you're born in Tala, and I saw my, and actually my mother's home is still there, and so I'm very still connected to it but uh, what is it about Tala as a historian that really interests you specifically because it's quite a specific interest isn't it yeah look I think it's not unrelated to where you come from right Um, now I'm as long out of Tala as I was in it so I lived in Tala for 26 years and I left Tala about 24 years ago so I haven't lived there in over 24 years um, but I, I, I got an impulse to write again. I had written a small book about 25 years ago, 1999, which was a, an oral folk history of Tala uh, called Since Adam Was a Boy. And in the 90s, I had gone around and recorded uh, the older people of the district and in particular the, the original Tala people as distinct from Newbies, the, the 30 or 40,000 yeah. people that had moved in since. Uh, and I recorded their memories and they spoke about the Civil War and the War of Independence and and the foundation of Ernie Chocolates and what Tala was like in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, and that absolutely fascinated me. And I didn't write very much at all then for 20 years. And when I decided to take back up my pen, I thought, well, what, what will I write about now? And I suppose as a younger writer, you're always advised, write about what you know, yeah. uh, which is what I had done 25 years earlier. Uh, but later on, I still felt there were stories uh, to tell the tales of Tala that haven't been told before, I guess. Um, so that's the impulse to write about Tala again after 25 years. That's it's fa- and obviously the social change that Tala saw then is sort of the the drama of the social history that you put in as well, which is fascinating. Yeah, and um, we have um, before Tala they started building the housing estates, and it, as we said, it was a quiet little rural village. Um, but we have a clip from a 1990s uh, radio documentary of of an observation of Tala. Well, at the start, we didn't think a whole lot of them, to tell you the truth. Because being, as I'd still say, was a country village at the foot of the Dublin mountains. And if you go to any part of Ireland, there's no one likes to see strangers moving into their little village. Oh, the day when I heard that I get a sigh of sorrow, but I said, what could they do? I suppose they wanted the houses for the people. But they brought out all the city people to us that we didn't like. We wanted to tell it to ourselves. 
we had it for years. No, the building put a damp on it. It's interesting, actually, and this is just an observation, that their accents are very Dublin with a slight edge of country as well in it. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose Tala is in that place. It's on the periphery of the city, but it's also parts of Tala are still very much in the countryside. Well, maybe maybe not so now, but certainly 20 or 30 years ago it was still very much country. And you could never really discern what a Tala accent was. Um, and a couple of times over the years, you know, you meet people, and I'm sure you maybe had a similar experience. Yeah, and you hear You meet people in town, they go, where are you from? You said, oh, I'm from Tala. And they said, really? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, you don't sound like you're from Tala. <laughs> and, and it's never obvious yes. to me what what are talking about things you shouldn't say to like. people. That's one of them. But, <laughs> but, but very much so, the older people of Tala, or the original Tala people, had quite a country accent. Um, and of course, that has been to somewhat muted in the last 30 or 40 years because there's people from all over Dublin and country uh, has moved into the Funny now, and I can say this as a, as a, as a Tala boy, uh, there is a Tala accent and I, I hear it now in people in their 30s. Yeah. Te- there is a Tala accent. Anyway, but you were a curious child and at the, the, the site of a prefab, we had a prefab church ah. uh, in Kingswood. You had a prefab library. Yeah. So that was that sort of started your interest, did it? Yeah, library. I suppose in the in the late seventies and very very early eighties, uh, thousands of houses have been built, churches have been built, and schools have been built. Or in some cases, churches hadn't been built. It was the prefabricated. Yeah. Was the yeah. St Killian's was your That's church? It, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. You're good. Um, <laughs> but uh, there wasn't that many public uh, facilities had been built. There was quite a lag of fifteen or twenty years between the residential development and the the public services to follow. But we had a tiny little uh, prefabricated, little green prefabricated library on the Green Hills Road. And after a removal of 40 years, I can't quite remember how small it was, but certainly even at 10 years of age, it seemed small at the time. So it must have been pretty small because when you're 10, everything looks huge. Yeah. Um, and, and one of my earliest memories uh, is my mother bringing us down to the library. Every fortnight, we, we'd be marched down to the library. And it was a good walk. It was probably a couple of kilometres, which when you're 10 years of age is a good walk. Uh, and, and going into the little library, middle of winter, lash and rain. And at that stage... Uh, you could still smoke in libraries. People could still <laughs> smoke in public libraries. Wow. And there was a, a a lady librarian there who was probably about 50, and I thought she was ancient because I was 10. Uh, and I've only I've recently learned, actually, her name was Mrs. Stapleton, oh, uh, which I've often wondered for, for decades, who was that woman? Uh, uh, a gentleman recently told me, ah, that was Mrs. Stapleton. But Mrs. Stapleton would, would stand behind the counter with her pipe uh, and and she'd stand behind this sort of plume of smoke looking at you quizzically and she was quite a stern lady. So did she had a pipe? Yeah, yeah, oh, she wow. smoked a pipe. No, other people, I've spoken to other people and they say, no, no, it was definitely cigars. She smoked cigars. Oh, she chain smoked cigars. I'm thinking, no, no, it was a pipe. That's but that's neither here nor there. Um, but one of my memories is, is about 10 years of age, uh, standing in front of her with my little ticket. I'm being quite, uh, you know, there's an element of trepidation in front of this stern elderly lady. And she said, can I help you, young man? And I said, yes, I want to, I want to know how to cut a woman in half. <laughs> and uh, she looked at me over her spectacles like she'd been doing it herself for years. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I clarified, I, I want to know how to do magic tricks. Oh, and I said, ah, yes. So uh, she brought me over to the, the conjuring section or the section with three or four magic books in it. And, uh, but all I learned that day was how to cut a deck of cards in half, actually. <laughs> uh, but, but it was an important institution in Tallinn in the 80s in the absence of, you know, the, there wasn't Super Bowl or, or sports bowls or cinemas or yeah. a lot of the, the services that came after. The library was, was pretty central to the village. Uh, and a, a book you found in there, a local history book called Malachy Horn Remembers by George Little. That was a part of your... Yeah, yeah. I was probably 14, that's probably four or five years later. I'd, I'd got a senior card, I think, at that stage. Um, and I came across this old tattered sort of paperback book that had been obviously rattling around for decades. And it was Maliki Horn Remembers. 
and it was an oral history of Tala, or an oral history, uh, the, the memories of this, this elderly gentleman, Malachy Horn, who had been born in 1847 and lived on top of Killinarden Hill. Uh, a small farmer, 87 years old, his sight failing, uh, untravelled, uneducated, uh, and a lot of people thought, you know, what has this guy got to say? And Dr. George Little in, in the early 40s uh, regularly went out to Malachy Horn and up to his little cottage on the top of Kilnarden Hill and recorded his memories. And uh, a number of articles was done in the old Dublin uh, Society Journal, but uh, it was later published as Malachy Horn Remembers in 1946. And, and it was a very, very successful book. And people all over the country uh, were interested in this book. People who had never even been to Tala. Was he just remembering social history of the time and what was going on? Yeah, yeah. It was very much the lore and the country lore. Wow. Uh, and, and much of what Maliki would have talked about, remembered, I suppose, would have been familiar to that gener- generation of people all over the country in, in, in rural communities all over Ireland. But but in relation to Tala in particular, I suppose, as a 14-year-old Tala boy reading it, he, he talked about, you know, the, the sack-em-ups or the, the grave robbers in, in Saggart Graveyard a uh, hundred years before his time, or, or maybe not quite a hundred years before his time. He talked about the rising of 1867 in Tala um, he talked about cockfighting. He talked about getting fellas hanged on the banks of the Dodder in 1815. And at 14 years of age, you know, uh, this was stuff 140 years ago. So that's 10 lifetimes ago. You know, it might as well have been the Romans or the Greeks. You know, this is a long, long time ago. But I knew these places. So the banks of the Dodder, of course, was our playground in Tallinn in the 70s and 80s. And what were the sack-em-ups? The sack-em-ups, the grave robbers. Wow. So they used to come out to the graveyards to, to rob the recently uh, oh. uh, buried corpses, uh, principally for the, the Royal College of Surgeons, I think. Uh, they, they would sell the, the cadavers to the Royal College of Surgeons. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was, uh, in, as late as the 1940s, that was still recalled, um, which is quite extraordinary. And it would have been kind of because my family are inside the pale city city dwellers. So that was very much countryside to them. I remember my grandmother being very upset when we moved out to Tala, you know, was, and, and there was no there was one bus a day. That's right. There was no street lights. That's right. When you moved. Yeah. Yeah. We moved there. I remember waking up thinking I was blind because it was the first time I'd slept somewhere with no street lights. Yeah. I was, oh, I was about eight or nine. That's right. So, so that was a big mistake. Because And also in your book, you you, you do explain that they, they when they planned Tala to, 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 to I suppose, urbanise it, they assumed people would have cars. Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose the development of Tala around the, the late 60s, around 1867, I suppose Miles Wright's plan for, for the, the expansion of Dublin and the growth of Dublin suggested these super satellites would be built in Tallaght, Clondalkin and Blanchardstown. And an early draft of his report had been sort of leaked. And that gave both the, the local authorities and private developers an impetus to start acquiring land in the late 60s around Tallaght. And there was wow. a scramble for land and there was competition between both the local authorities and the private developers to get this land. Um, the the idea of, of the, the these large suburbs uh, were predicated very much on, on successful plans that had been implemented in the UK by single local authorities and also in America. Um, but but that was predicated on every household having access to at least one motor car and probably two motor cars in time. 
And so these very low-density residential developments with vast swathes of, of green space between the estates, um, it mitigated against, I suppose, the efficient provision of public services such as bin collection and refuge collection or postal deliveries, um, but also of, of public transport um, because the, the, the densities weren't really there. And also a lot of the estates, uh, and, and you'll remember this, there was a lot of cul-de-sacs. Mm. So, so buses, large buses couldn't get up or down those cul-de-sacs because they couldn't turn at the end of them. So the development of these, uh, the, there was assumed, firstly, most houses would have a motor car. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, that, and it was a recommendation of Wright in 1967, that a shuttle bus service um, should be serving all of these these hinterlands uh, and connecting it with the the, the main transport arteries. Um, as late as 1990, car ownership in certain quarters in Tala was less than 40%. Wow. Um, so, so can I spin you back before we run out of time, actually? Because I want to spin you right back because one thing in Tala that I remember, but I was really fascinated by, was the industry up there, the employers. So I remember Cabris. Obviously, loads of people worked yes, there. Yes, yeah. But, but prior to that, there was the chocolate factory. Yeah, well, Ernie Chocolates in 1924. Uh, They're a huge been, employer. Oh, absolutely. For 50 years, probably certainly one of the most important employers for 30 years and a very important employer for 50 years from 1924 until 1980 um, now really from the late 60s it, it, it was declining somewhat but it was still a very important employer until as late as 1980 and um, it's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory stuff you know it was one of the largest chocolate factories in all of Europe um, in the mid 60s and the early 60s um, had been established up in up in uh, Donegal actually well well, Ernie Straban um, in 1919 um, and after the Civil War and partition then, they moved down to Tala in 1924 um, and at one stage employing over 800 people in Tala uh, in a very small country village in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so a profoundly important So enterprise. it looked completely different. You can imagine the landscape of that even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost cinematic, the vision of it really. I it think. is, yeah. 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 The, the rolling Tala hills. This is a wonderful book. I've got loads of text here. So proud of Albert and the amazing amount of information he's gathered about our hometown. I remember Miss Stapleton puffing away in the library. He says, Fiona. Dear Brendan, loving the chat on about Tala. Great memories of also being marched to that library. It developed my love of reading. Thank you, Louise. And I bought this book and really look forward to reading it. I was brought up in Old Bon and now uh, back living in Tala Village. It's a great place and has a really interesting history that is not widely known. Tell me one thing in this book that people will be surprised to find out about. Gorgeous book, by the way. It's hardback. It's a lovely coffee table book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's one thing. I suppose you're from, from Kill the Manor or Kingswood Heights. Kingswood. Um, near <laughs> enough. And, and uh, <laughs> most people associate St. Kevin, I think, with Glen de Locke. Yeah. Um, and they don't tend to think of St. Kevin as a Talaman. But, but St. Kevin actually studied in Kill the Manor uh, under St. Owen back in the 6th century and spent probably the better part of a decade uh, studying in Tala under St. Owen before he went on. He was baptised by Cronin in Clondalkin. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most people, when they think of St. Kevin, you know, indelibly, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, Glendalock. Wow. But he, he spent his formative years in Tala, so, you know, we, we can adopt him as a, an honorary Tala man. Lovely. Uh, Albert Paris, uh, a ramble about Tala history, people and place. Uh, illustrations by Michael O'Brien and published by O'Brien Press is available in all good bookshops. Best of luck with it. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Now, my guest this morning, it's safe to say, is a, a pioneer of the alternative comedy scene in 1980s London, which went on to become the comic strip, The Young Ones, and the BBC's hugely successful Bottom and the live tour all around the UK and Ireland. Um, 
he is a long-lasting double act, had a long-lasting double act with, with the genius Rick Mayle and, of course, is has a long-lasting partnership with his wife, Jennifer Saunders. And he's one of a very small group of people who can definitely claim they defined British comedy in the 80s, 90s and noughties. And he's told his story in a book now called Berserker. Good morning, Adrian Edmondson. Good morning. Thank you so much can for I say the... Uh, the uh, the relationship with Jennifer isn't in the past tense. It's, it's still <laughs> <Yeah. ongoing. laughs> sorry, sorry. Of course, of course, of course. My bad. Unless uh, you know something I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is called Berserk. Lovely to chat to you. I'm a big fan. I, yeah. I followed your work uh, all my adult life. Yeah. Um, your book is called Berserker. Great word. Yeah. Uh, where did it come from? Um, there are two two reasons it's called Berserker. One is I sort of um, kidded myself as a kid that I was a Viking. Uh, just because of my name and where I was born and sort of uh, an interest in uh, a medieval history when I was when I was at school and sort of following the Vikings, you know, into, into Britain and that sort of stuff. But the, the other sort of more pertinent reason is that um, I, I was sort of, uh, something happened to me when I was a kid. I was, I was sent away uh, from my parents' house and uh, uh, I was the only sibling to be sent away. And uh I, I, I realise in retrospect that uh, at the age of 11, 12, I, I, I sort of filled the void where my family should have been with a search for adrenaline okay. and excitement and thrills and, uh, and became a berserker. Okay, um, sort of word. Desperate for it in, in a kind of slightly uh, unhealthy way. Do you okay, know what I mean? Yeah. So um, let's go back to your childhood a little bit because the book is a memoir and it, it does chart yeah. this story. Uh, your childhood, you've moved, your family moved around a lot. Yeah, my dad was a teacher for the... Well, he, he was a teacher, but he taught forces kids. So uh, we lived in Cyprus, Bahrain and Uganda. Wow. Um, and, you know, just different different school every year it was. It was quite a... Uh, I, think, I think some people call it peripatetic. Right. Uh, I would call I would call it really, really, un- really useless yeah. <laughs> for making friends. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <clears throat> so uh, yeah. your parents then sent you off to boarding school, and they stayed on in Uganda. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They stayed there with the with, with my sister and my brothers. And why were you sent? Um, <clears throat> I was sent to a, a very minor uh, army oriented. Uh, public school in um, East Yorkshire, wow. Pocklington, uh, which sounds like a funny town, but isn't really. Uh, uh, and what? basically, um, I mean, a, a lot of my humour is, is sort of uh, based around slapstick and violence, and, and most of it comes from the kind of uh, non-slapstick, but, but incredibly violent yeah. <laughs> upbringing I had at that school. I mean, they had sticks, they, they had slippers, they, they had all sorts of things to hit you with. Um, one of them strung a conker and sort of just kept repeatedly hitting me on the head with it. Uh, it you know, it was it was a kind of very, very torturous place. Mm. Okay. Um, and I found the only kind of the, the only way to kind of deal with that was uh, to either buckle and sort of uh, blub and sort of go, oh woe me, or, or the other way out was just to laugh at them uh, and and to find it funny, yeah. and and that's what I did. So I, I found sort of. Uh, I found violence funny ever since, as you did can it, see from the, the list make, of works. Did it make you tough as a kid? Um, no, I just think it made me berserk. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any toughness in it. I was just wild. Um, and still am slightly. Yeah. 
It's, it's just sort of, you know, it tails off as you get into your 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but I've, I've still got that kind of streak in me. Um, I mean, yeah, I have. Uh, it, it goes on. And do you think that time there made you re- repress express, expressing emotions? I mean, I, I think I know the answer to that question, but yeah, do you think? Yeah, that, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, I had no idea, you know, I... I I had no idea what love was um, until my sort of late twenties, thirties, really. Really? Um, yeah, found it very confusing to understand uh, why anyone would ever really like you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you ever wonder why um, you and not your siblings were sent away? I thought it was. Um, I, I, my dad's dead, so I can't ask him, and uh, my mum won't won't answer the question. Um, and um, sort of feigns, pretends that my dad made all the decisions. Who knows? Um, I, I, I sort of, I took solace in, in the philosophy of Stoicism eventually. Um, and the, um, it's kind of like a CBT. And you, you, it, you come to understand that you can't control what's happened in your past, but you can control what you think about it. Uh, you, you can't change what's happened, but you can change how you think. And you you can sort of compartmentalise it and and actually brush it away, and um, that's that's what I've done in the end. How and would I'm you? I'm happier for that. You had a complicated relationship with your father, then, would you say? Uh, yeah, I would say. Um, I think I was his. Uh, uh, I think that a lot of fathers do this. Uh, if they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve in their own life, they sort of take the first son and, and and sort of try to make him have the life that they wanted. Uh, and I, and I, I don't think I was uh, the right material for for being that sort of... Um, yes. To, to aspire, his aspirations were, you, were to be a to be an upper middle class person and okay. um, be cultured. So he had, ex- you know, he had expectations of you, you think? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I, I failed those quite quickly and... Um, and I think he just gave up. <laughs> wow. Now, I, I feel comfortable talking to you about this because I had a very complicated relationship with my father as well. Um, yeah. But I do think... A lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. I think of our generation maybe as well. Was yeah. he, did he, he never went to see your shows, your live shows, did he? No, he never came to any. Wow. Whereas in contrast, my father... Does that hurt? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, I see... I, does it hurt? It... it it didn't at the time because I was, uh, you know, I was fueling my myself with other things. Uh, you, yeah. you kind of you do replacements, don't you, for for things that are not, that are not there. And it's only in hindsight that you kind of uh, sort it all out, which is why I really quite enjoyed writing the book because it was, it was it gave me the ability to kind of actually analyse what had happened in my life. And um, it must have. He must have been funny, proud of you. A funny thing happened in that in in that first lockdown. Yeah, uh, that happened when we when we were all kind of kept indoors. Uh, I I I realised that um, <clears throat> I really lent into it. I loved it. I absolutely adored it um, because it was the first time in my life that I'd stopped. It felt like since that time as a kid when I was sent off, I was constantly sort of slashing and fighting my way through life, trying to make things happen and. And and that this forced stop, uh, and I'm lucky enough to have a nice garden, and I just started growing vegetables. And it it, it kind of I realised that there'd been a buzz in my head all these years, 
and and it started to go away then. Wow. And and that that's, that sort of gave me the impetus to write the book, really. So, uh, kind of understanding that it's not it's not so something goes away that you understand what it was. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. And you described here, and we'll we'll move on from it now because I want to, I'm 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 just fascinated by how you're speaking about this. But you said that you kind yeah. of came to a conclusion and made peace with the fact that you think your dad didn't really like you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think uh, I I can't. There's no other way of yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine that he would argue with that. <laughs> and you have a much better relationship, ironically, with your father-in-law. I did, yeah. I mean, he, he's dead as well now, but he, he was—he was—he loved everything I did, and he was very proud of me and very kind of supportive. And I, I remember seeing him. He came to a bottom live show, and um, I, I could see him, and I thought, oh. Christ, he's having a heart attack. (laughs) But what he was doing was falling off his chair laughing. It was, oh, it was so, he was such a warm-hearted, generous. You you ever seen, um, uh, I did uh, War and Peace a few years ago, and I played the old Count Rostov, and um, I based him on my father-in-law. Sort of incredibly supportive, jolly, uh, you know, kind of, uh, someone who loves their kids, you know. Um, yeah, it's good to have a different role model. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and and then just to move on from the school years, but another thing that I read, which is fascinating, when you left school, the kids that you'd spent 10 years with, you never looked back, you never said goodbye, you just all left. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that was? Well, because I think, I, think, I think it was a traumatic place. Yeah, of course. I had a band at, I had a band at school, and, um, and when that Friends Reunited thing happened, we, we sort of got the band back together again, man. And... Um, and it was a, it was an odd experience. I'm not sure I would repeat it, but uh, we did have a strange chat uh, about why we'd never kept up with each other. <laughs> and uh, my 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 old friend Ian, who played the guitar, said his his father sort of picked him up at the last day of school and sort of they packed everything in the car and everything. And he said, "Right, uh, do you want to go and say goodbye to all your friends?" and Ian just looked at, back at the school and said, nah. Wow. <laughs> so I think it's uh, hysterical. Because wow. I, it was, it was, I think we were all traumatised by it. It was, it, was a kind of, it was a kind of prison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it quite like a br- brutal, brutal... Well, why would anyone want to remember it? Yeah. Or anything that it was there, you know? And I love the way you link your slapstick comedy... To- to that, to those early stages in your life. But tell me about Soho in the early eighties and the comic strip club, which I I, I didn't realise that the TV show was named after the club because the club was actually a strip yeah. club where you had a comedy show. Well, we uh, we we rented a, there was a Raymond's Review Bar, which is oh, uh, I know Raymond's it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Raymond, what's, what's his name, Raymond. Paul Raymond, Paul Raymond. Uh, was, was the man who sort of owned all those porn mags and everything, but he also had this review bar in Soho and. Uh, he, uh, he had two theatres in it, and um, uh, he had a strip show in one, and uh, we rented the other one and did the comic strip <laughs> instead. Uh, we shared the same bar, which was rather odd, because, you know, we were these kind of... Uh, uh, I mean, we weren't overtly political, but we were... Um, you know, we, 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 we sort of had the non-sexist, non-racist, you know, ideology. Uh, but if you went into, into the season, the, the, the barmaids were topless. Yeah. You know, there was, a, there was an anomaly. Yes, there was a living <laughs> irony. <laughs> but loads of people came through that, that 
small little club, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I mean, the core of it was um, me and Rick, Dawn and Jennifer, uh, Pete Richardson and Nigel Planer, and Alexis Sale. That was the kind of core of it. But uh, Ben Alton came through there, and uh, oh, the original uh, Woke Brigade. Would you say the which the original Woke Brigade? Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose woke's the the word used now. Yeah, yeah. But um, woke's sort of weird, weird word, isn't it? Isn't it? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It it's uh, <laughs> it's an attempt to put it down. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, but uh, people need to reclaim it. So you're doing you're doing comedy, the comedy strip, and then all of a sudden, it kind of seems like it explodes because the comedy strip presents starts on Channel Four, and very shortly afterwards, the young one starts on BBC. That what was the, yeah. that, that also, it flipped very quickly, didn't it? It's um, well, it was as a result of Channel Four. I mean, that, it was the birth of Channel Four, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there was a whole kind of that that had a remit to make programs that hadn't been you know seen the like of before. And uh, here was this club with <laughs> uh, a load of people in it, and so they 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 sort of commissioned us to write the Comic Strip Presents series, and. Uh, there was a really good producer at the BBC called Paul Jackson, and he um, he he was uh, afraid of Channel Four creaming off all this uh, talent, and uh, and he sort of got the young ones commissioned at the same time, and and the first two episodes of the <clears throat> comic strip and the young ones went out within a week of each other. It was wow. a in competition, you know, <laughs> with each other. It was bizarre. I mean, my teenage. Uh, head remembers five, the, the famous five, the five go mad. I mean, yeah. so we quote lines, quoted lines from that at school to sc- each other at school. I mean, we were obsessed with yeah. it. It was brilliant, really brilliant. Yeah, there was a pantry show. The comic strip presents, wasn't it? I think yes. some of them were great, you know. But I mean, that that was the beauty of it. I mean, it was, it was great that we were allowed to do that. So you know, some of them were much better than others. Um, and no one remembers the bad ones. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's all right. People it's funny, the two that, that are mentioned here, the, the, yeah, like Five Go Mad and Bad News, the, the spoof documentary about the, yeah. the hopeless heavy metal band. Gee, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which came out, I have to say, before Spinal Tap. Oh, well done, Other people say, oh, people say, oh, Bad News, the, the British Spinal Tap. And I say, no. Spinal Tap is the British, is the American bad news. Uh, but there you go. <clears throat> I mean, we were all copying. Uh, Eric Idle had done, had done the Ruttles, you know, with um, uh, a couple of years before, maybe five years before. So um, it wasn't entirely new. And uh, like John Cleese's Faulty Towers, there was only two series of The Young Ones. And for me, yeah. that, The Young Ones was a, 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 a generation-defining comedy, from, certainly for me and my friends. It's only two series. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's like, wow. You don't remember much about The yeah. Young Ones, do you? It's 12 episodes. I didn't write it. Yeah. Um, and it takes a week to make an episode. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> do the math. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took up about 12 weeks of my life, 14 weeks if you had a bit of location filming and a bit of dubbing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've talked about it a lot longer than, I've, than, <laughs> than it took to make. That's interesting, you know, isn't it? It was, a, it was a brief kind of burst of fire in my life. And, yeah. um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely text here. Uh, I've, I've sort of come to terms with it. I used to hate it. I used to hate the way it was so big. 
you know, and sort of loomed over everything else. But I think it's probably just the passage of time. I, you know, people understand that I do other stuff. Yes, 100%. Um, it's very, very, very hard to be defined by a hit. I know, I can, yeah, I know exactly what you, you're describing. And, and yeah. yes, but that, that that no longer is the case, of course. But I, I really want to yeah. just uh, dive in a little bit about your relationship with Rick Mayo. Um, how did you meet? Yeah. Uh, we were on the uh, we snuck in under the <laughs> under the wire on, into the drama course at Manchester Uni. We both did really badly in our A levels, and uh, we just sort of uh, pitched up at the same time with the same. We were the we discovered we'd been the same people at school at different schools. You know, we were the ones who did all the plays. We our mums had packed us off with the same. Um, Dressing gown, <laughs> identical dressing gowns, sort of paisley pattern job. That, from that was CNA. a sign, a sign, definitely. Yeah, and we each had a copy of Gorilla, the Bonzo Dog Doodah album, and we just sort of fell in with each other very quickly because, I mean, a, a lovely bunch of people in quite a small department, but a lot of them were very serious, and um, and we we sort of liked to undercut it all the time and. We kind of agreed on certain. We agreed that Waiting for Godot was the funniest play ever written, not not the most meaningful. You know, we we found it hysterical. We we found bleak comedy really really, really engaging. Uh, we thought uh, the Roadrunner cartoons were better than Shakespeare. You know, and uh, that that was a kind of our attitude. So so we 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 kind of bonded pretty quickly. And there was a kind of uh, it was it was the mid seventies, and um, we. Uh, Equity, the Actors Union, was a closed shop at the time. You couldn't get in, you know, it was Catch-22. Couldn't get in if you were an act- unless you were an actor. And couldn't be an actor if you weren't in. It was weird. And there were kind of some some recognised routes into it. One was through theatre and education, and the other was through variety contracts. So we decided to go this route and try and get variety contracts by, by doing comedy. So we started doing lunchtime pub theatre. We never we never got the contracts, but we <laughs> but we developed this act, and um, and you know it kind of it paved the way for us in the end. I, I love, but we sort of be, but so as I, I I kind of make the point in the book that we we came com, became comedians by accident. Right. It, I think if you got either of us on one side at the beginning of our first term there and said, "What do you want to be when you leave?" We'd have both said actor. You know, right. yeah, yeah. Well, Rick, Rick would have said sex god, but he 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 would have wanted to get there by being, uh, you know, an actor, Paul Newman or Robert Redford or something. I love that you described that you were in love with each other in a platonic way. Yeah, yeah, we were. Uh, we, we, we it's, it's a strange thing. This that, um, especially with Bottom. Bottom's the kind of the the, the biggest. Uh, body of work that we we have, you know, there's three series and five live shows in the film, so it's quite a lot of writing, and um, we we spent an awful lot of time writing each other's characters. Right. You know, I don't know how old you are, but men of our generation, uh, yeah, well, you 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 sneak in. <laughs> men of our generation are, are are kind of very bad at acknowledging yes. any kind of love yeah. for for their male friends you know Do you uh, it's all that? kind of absolutely yeah, yeah I, I i've been doing a kind of uh, live show to support this recently and i kind of end every show by saying you know if if 
if, if, if you can do one thing when you leave here that would make your life immeasurably better, it's just tell your best male friend that you love him. <laughs> Use the word love. Say, I love you. Oh, I you love know, that. It, 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 it kind of just opens up the world to you. Yeah. A friend of mine came to me, came, I, was, I was doing a thing at the RSC last year, and uh, he came up and stayed, and uh, I was doing Scrooge, and he... Uh, as he left the next morning, he, he, oh, he said, thank you for being my friend. <laughs> it was so lovely. Yeah. So touching. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really lovely. Uh, yeah. um, so I have loads of texts here. People, uh, um, hi, Brendan, just want to applaud Adrian's dramatic performance in Save Me, chilling and unforgettable regards from Joe. Thank you, Joe. Love listening to Adrian yeah. Edmondson. His performance in War and Peace was unforgettable from Darren in Limerick. Loads and loads. I'm so uh, happy that I was homesick today yeah. to hear Adrian on your show. Normally I'd be teaching teenagers how to cook. Tell Adrian I'm so grateful for him for his comedy when I was growing up. He showed us in the 80s uh, repressed Ireland that other ways of looking at life are valid. Thank you so much, Adrian. Big kiss. That's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I, I have to I ask mean, you about Jennifer. I'm a huge fan. Uh, uh, yeah. You... Uh, you felt it difficult. I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase for you. But you say in the book that you, you obviously found it very difficult talking because of school and what you've described talking to girls when you were growing up. Yeah, is that fair yeah. to say? Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't, didn't, yeah, we didn't have the first clue. Hard enough talking to blokes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, you know, we we didn't have any contact with any any one of the other sex. You know, for until till we left at the age of eighteen, suddenly you got these kind of <laughs> repressed blokes, sort of hoping that if you just stand next to a girl, they might talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever you did, you convinced her, and and you're still together. Well, but you, you see, know, the the the, the, the fun the, the <laughs> what happened there was we started working with each other long before we ever got together. Ah. and I think I think that's what kind of did it for us, as a. Um, <laughs> You know, we 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 were working on stuff for four years before before we we, we sort of became an item. Um, and I think knowing someone else first in, on on a different level is a is, is a positive boon. Yes. Uh, do you, in the book, you tell us. Do you want to tell us how how Jennifer sealed the deal? Um, oh, was she? <laughs> You know, for for a man who finds it hard to speak to women, I think yeah. she found it slightly hard to speak to men as well. Because okay. uh, I, I came out of the pub and we were filming somewhere and uh, and got into my car and uh, she'd left a, a cigarette packet under the windscreen wiper and, uh, and it just said, Adrian, I love you, love Jennifer on it. And uh, that was the first, first I knew. <laughs> Amazing. So I've still, I've still got it. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Frame that. I hope it's framed. Battered, uh, tiny little wild thing. Gorgeous. Silk cut. <laughs> so the, your book, Berserker, is in shops now. Um, yeah. All good bookshops available to buy. Adrian Edmonds, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, you, it's been, that's been lovely. I really enjoyed it, Brendan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Let's take a break. Now, I'm very excited to say actor Claire Dunn joins me. And Claire is in Peter Pan, which is running at the Gate Theatre at the moment. Um, you're playing Captain Hook and Mrs. Darling. And uh, uh, obviously, 
the performance was cancelled last night in the mm-hmm. gate in Parnell Square. I mean, it's really shocking what's happened. I just have to address it with you. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think it's important to acknowledge like the local community right around the gate at the moment um, and especially the school that's connected to this incident because um, we actually have a connection with that school and work with them all the time. So we're just thinking of everyone that's been affected by this yeah. and uh, our hearts go out to the, the families and everyone from last night's events. Thanks Claire it's really just important to say that particularly mm-hmm. I could see it unfold and I could see the theatre in the middle of it all I was just, and I knew I was meeting you today and I was thinking absolutely. how are you how are you guys coping were you texting each other and checking in? Yeah absolutely of yeah. course yeah we're all going to uh, band together today and decide what way to move forward but um, hopefully we are back up and running soon and um, you know Giving people some sort of joy in the run up to Christmas and everything, and continuing with the with the show for all the kids and families coming in. Um, but yeah, just mindful of what's happened in the last twenty four hours. Of course, thanks so much, Claire. Okay, so Roddy Doyle, the mm-hmm. genius, has written the adaptation of Peter Pan for the Gate. He's done a bit of swapping around now. Uh, <laughs> and normally, Captain Hook is played by Mister Darling, but you play Captain Hook and Mrs. Darling. That's right. Yeah, a gender swap. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How does that feel? It feels amazing. It feels absolutely right. Like, <laughs> oh, good, good, good. <laughs> one of the one of the first roles I ever played on stage that made me want to be an actor was by it was playing a man. Like, actually, twice I played uh, a man in transition year in you know in the transition year school musical. Yeah, and then I played a, a man in a play uh, Azdak in the Caucasian Chalk Circle when I was about 19 and I remember then going oh if you just get to jump around and play whatever you want as an actor um, then I'll, I'll be an actor um, so this was very in, in, in tune with my choices The Irish <laughs> Times writes that it's uh, an entertaining pirate and as warm loving Mrs Darling it's a clever gender swap uh, mm. raising stimulating questions and challenges of motherhood Yeah You kind like, of get drawn to that don't you? Yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm one for the motherhood themes, but um, yeah, definitely Roddy really wanted to make a point of like showing, um, you know, those moments when when parents and and especially mammies have moments of kind of exploding at their kids or just going, my God, will you all shut up? Like, so there's a real funny um, kind of playing with that idea and that part of somebody. And then I think as as Mrs. Darling kind of returns at the end of the play you kind of feel a wink and a nod from her to Wendy that's to her daughter in the play who's Wendy uh, played by Katrina and it's kind of like a little a moment of like you know we all have these parts for ourselves yeah (laughs) it's okay light and shade absolutely Mrs Darling is self-educated and Mm -hmm. open-minded to a different world for her children Mm -hmm. Uh, she's imaginative and slightly feminist and is that yeah. the wink and the nod to Wendy? I think that's why there's a bit of a nod to her at the end of the play. Absolutely. Um, because Roddy has moved the James Barry original version from London to Dublin mm-hmm. at the same time on the planet, which would have been around 1905, 1910. Um, there's a different kind of class structure in Dublin. So we kind of had to like think of it in a different way in the background of it, even though it's absolutely mad and very dreamlike and goes off on one because it's the land of Neverland and et cetera, et cetera. It also has to be rooted in a certain place political social landscape so we had to find ways as actors to root that for ourselves so I feel like Mrs Darling has been telling stories to the kids and reading certain magazines and newspapers at the time and very aware politically at the time Interesting, and yeah. also in 1910 it's really interesting that um, Emily Pankhurst the original one of the original big suffragettes was speaking in Dublin at the time so I think actually there was a real air of like um, awakening yeah awakening and equality and stuff going on in Dublin at 
the time. I'm so. loving this subtext. Yeah. I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. Uh, it's set, as you said, it's set in the early 1900s mm-hmm. and it's fairly faithful to the spirit of the time. But mm. the story is radically different. That's, yeah. And that's quoting Roddy himself, right? Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> I would say it's very true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I've kind of already answered that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I, I want to... I not waffling. No, you um, didn't at all because actually what I wanted to say is the story of yeah. Padre O'Fan. Oh. Yeah, who after leaving his hidey hole in Phoenix Park got caught in a crosswind a, a half a mile over Ireland and wound up in London telling J.M. Barry his story. And so this is where it came. Oh, he, right. Where, yes, I wasn't aware of this Oh, bit. there you go. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, he's kind of embedded it deeply into mm. that sort of Joycey in Dublin. And yeah. the, the Dubliners, the, the, the way Joyce describes Dublin in the mm. Dubliners, it looks like that, right? Yeah, like it really looks and I feels can't believe we're like connecting that. Joyce to Peter Pan, but I'm loving it. We're <laughs> connecting Joyce. God, um, we're also like, I feel like we're very influenced by O'Casey at the time yeah. as well. Like there's a few, there's definitely a few homage moments to that in the play. Um, so yeah, there's a strange feeling in the play of like, oh, it's a time of shifting imagination and change in Ireland. And that kind of chimes with a lot of the themes of the storytelling and how their minds are really woken and, and, and freed up the children in the play um, as they go off to adventure and stuff. So. so so there is a lot of fun in it as well. Mm. So that's just oh, a, yeah. like this inflatable crocodile that dances through the crowd. <laughs> so it does yes. get kind of wild, right? It's actually like a puppet. It's incredible. Is and it? It's one, of, it's one of the most amazing things you will see um, on a stage and yeah, like honestly it gets such a huge reaction every night I feel like that gets the biggest uh, applause and reaction compared to all of us actors like Describe it to me Describe <laughs> it What is it? It's, it's been it's been basically uh, made by this incredible um, puppeteer maker in the UK Caroline She's incredible and she created lots of different puppets in the show I don't want to give away too much but essentially it's it's big yes. and it arrives uh, in a surprise and kind I, of way. I, 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 unfortunately, I, I was actually supposed to go to the yeah. show last night. Of course, it was cancelled. So I would I would know what it looked like and I'd be able to help you with that description yeah. if I had seen it. But I will be going next week for sure. Um, the themes about Peter Pan is about mm. the transition from childhood and not really wanting to grow up. You know, yeah. that awkward the loss of the loss of the childhood and it's a limbo period and I actually remember being about 10, 11 and wrestling with whether or not I wanted to grow up and seeing Peter Pan and really resonating with me that, yeah. that's a big theme in it isn't it? Oh it's huge yeah I mean that that is what Peter Pan like he is literally the boy that doesn't want to grow up um, and doing that doing this play it kind of has a mad effect on you when you're doing it because you do just as you say you connect right back to your own childhood and your own inner child there's a fear isn't there you're afraid to grow up yeah you're afraid to grow up and yet like um, my my fellow was in to see the show on opening night and he was like but I kind of feel sorry for Peter Pan because there's also a feeling of if you get if you get stuck and don't grow up, um, you feel left behind. So it's and Roddy then came in and spoke to us and had a group a group session at one point, and said, "I suppose what the play is really trying to teach us is how you take uh, your childhood and your and your own childlike self with you in life, ah. and find a way to like integrate it into your everyday and and remember to stay playful as much as like taking yourself seriously and getting on." Which with kind of would describe him a little bit? Yeah, it? absolutely. I was actually just reading something this morning about being an artist and a writer and how on one hand you have to be absolutely playful on another hand you have to be your own best editor and create all this structure and like yeah. foundation and like still work so there's always this dichotomy 
dichotomy between us all as human beings and as artists, like to keep the child alive inside of you, but also take responsibility for yourself and be a good, you know, civil person yeah. <laughs> in the world. And, and so the story of trying to find your place, mm. you wrote a film about it. And I, yeah. I, I'm really pleased to say it's in my it's in my top three on my downloads. It's you're up there with uh, Little Miss Sunshine and uh, uh, Sunshine Cleaning and herself. Oh my God, what I a saw compliment. It, I, how long ago was that film? We actually filmed it in 2019. It was before um, the whole, the big C and that. everything. But then, um, so we released in a slightly reduced audience capacity, but recently it's been doing really well. We were one of the top 10 films on Netflix, Global Films, a couple of weeks ago. So we're absolutely thrilled. It's been seen by millions of people globally now. Written by you? Yeah. Yeah. Starring yeah. you, uh, I've never met you. I, I, it's one of my favorite films. There is a there is a plot twist in the film that you probably should see coming, but it's the most. I dropped me a cup of tea. <laughs> I literally was like, oh, oh no! Like I, the moment I screamed. It's yeah. an amazing film. Just tell people quickly what the film herself is about. Just um, so I don't. Be it's about a single mother in Dublin who decides to build a house for herself and she cannot the, get the her home. Christ, she can't get home, and uh, she's coming from very like uh, you know a domestic violence sort of situation so um, it really chimes with a lot of people in Dublin at the minute and she manages to begin to build a house for herself so it's sort of actually as well about the community that forms around her because she decides to tell a better story for herself and her life and then this kind of community comes and helps build that for her so actually in the end of the story you feel it's a lot about um, resilience and how we all come together to tell a better story of ourselves so very Hopefully that film would also like be chiming in with the momentary <laughs> events as well. So, um, yeah. yeah, but that's what it's really about. And it's on Netflix. And it's, well, it's on Netflix Global. I don't know, it seems to be on a million different platforms <laughs> at the minute. But yeah, people can just uh, check out where uh, to brilliant. see it on I, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. It's in Thank my top you. three. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's Thank so nice you. to meet you. Thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> I, well, look, I, I was like, oh! <laughs> I got very excited. Um, uh, okay. As an actor in this kind of, uh, it, it, there's a lot of ropes and jumping and acrobatics, isn't there, in Peter Pan? Like, yeah. did you have to be very fit? Yeah, like we've had to do a workout <laughs> every was morning. A warm <laughs> like, up, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've had to work out. We've been working with an amazing choreographer, Jonah, who works as an acrobat and a circus performer. So the 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 fighting and the and the kind of stunt element of it is actually very integrated with acrobatics and dance, and um, so yeah we've all got fierce strong core strength now uh, doing sit ups every day and doing pilates and doing all sorts of things and um, because we all have to hold each other's weight and do interesting fight moves I've never done some of the things that I've done in this show really um, like yeah what no kind my mom my mom was like you looked like um, <laughs> a piece of spaghetti bent over backwards at one point and then you bounced back up and I don't know how it happened and I was like yeah yeah no I don't know how I do that either but with the help of Liam Bixby playing Peter Pan sure I can I can manage it <laughs> so. It's very physically demanding yeah 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 and and well I think I think the Lost Boys and Peter Pan and uh, Wendy etc they I feel like they actually have a lot more to do than myself and the pirates um, personally but yeah I don't I sometimes don't realise how physical it is until after the show and I realise God I've done a I've done another workout there <laughs> but yeah it's great crack to watch though as well um, and there's loads of colour and fantastic lighting and the designer like 
like the design on it is incredible and the costumes. So I feel like it's basically, it's a fun fair and it's a great thing for family to come in and see in the build up towards Christmas. 100%. Mm. Do you, I, I'm really fascinated about how physical it is. Like, so you're mm-hmm. coming up to Christmas and in the rest of the real world, everybody's <laughs> slightly winding down. Like yeah. People are, as I'm hearing the phrase, you know, clawing to Christmas now just to <laughs> yeah. get a break. No sign is slowing down for you guys, no? No, we just get the three days off and then we'll be entertaining you all. So I said the one saving grace of performing uh, in a theatre show over Christmas <laughs> is that you can eat as many calories as you want and you don't put the weight on. So in January, I'll be, cloud. I'll be absolutely flying fit. <laughs> uh, it'd be remiss of us not to talk about how many different adaptations there have been of Diane Barry's mm-hmm. Peter Pan. So the, the Peter Pan first appeared in an adult novel, The Little White Bird, in mm-hmm. 1902. I'm probably telling you this that you know. I, I love these little facts. Mm-hmm. It then was serialised in a US magazine, uh, Scribner's magazine. And in 1904, the stage play... Peter and Wendy, 1911. But, like, can you think of the other ones that we've seen growing up? Well, I always think of the one called Hook, you know, yeah, Robin Williams. Cute, like, I, I didn't see the more recent one. I watched a bit of the Disney one that was very recent. And then there's another one that I've not seen, unfortunately. But um, Hook would be the one that I remember from my ch- childhood. I, I think that's a, the, one of the biggest ones. Finding yeah. Neverland. And Finding Neverland. Yes, of course. Tony oh Depp God, plays gorgeous. the author. Yeah. Disney's cartoon ab- adaptation, which would have featured around our childhood and come yeah. up with various things. The Lost Boys. Yeah. The vampire movie. That's based on Peter Pan. No way. That's what I said when <laughs> they told me upstairs. And that's one of my favourite movies. Seen that. Oh my God. It's I really good. It's a 19, eight, late 80s movie, I think. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Late 80s movie, The Lost Boys. Really wow. good vampires. But about yeah. boys who live forever or young men who live forever. Mm. Um, so Peter Pan is an amalgamation of people that Barry, the author, lost in his life, mm. which is, is featured in the Johnny Depp uh, in the Johnny Depp Finding Neverland. Mm. Uh, do you know this story? Yeah, like I actually, I haven't recently watched Finding Neverland. You're reminding me to watch it now. But um, it is very much connected to grief of, like he lost his brother, I think, yeah, in, that's right. in an accident. And his mother struggled a lot with the grief over that. Yeah. So um, I think there was a, like there was a lot of talk about Jay and Barry um, kind of struggling with his own relationship with his mom because she was so in grief over his brother. But then over the years, they they were fine. It was just in the immediate aftermath. But I think actually the girl that's called Wendy in Peter Pan comes from um, his. Ins- he had this connection to a family where there was little kids that he played with, and one of them she couldn't say the word friend. She she got her oars on. She used to say Wendy. For a friend. Okay. And so he made up the name Wendy from the word friend, oh, which is cute. so cute. That, and and, <laughs> and like... Jack upstairs is going to be thrilled because he said, he has a fact that he didn't know it was true, but now it is true. Wendy <laughs> created the Wendy. word, the name Wendy. Yeah. It's so cute. <laughs> Do you love seeing the kids' faces? Can you see them from the stage? Yeah. Like I actually, I have a moment as uh, Captain Hook where I slightly talk to the audience, you know. What do you say? And um, well, I say a lot of things. <laughs> Can you give us a little bit of hope? Remember, well, this is audio <laughs> only, so I'll close my eyes, right? Give us a bit of hook. Well, I say a lot of things about, like... Go on. Uh, I say, children don't love me. And they, oh. they all want to be Peter Pan and not one of them wants to be Hook. They prefer to be their pathetic little selves than Hook. And then what surprised me in the last few performances that, like I say, not one of them wants to be Hook. Well, several little girls in the audience put their hands up and they're like, I want to be Hook. I think it's the costume, lads. I think it's the costume. I think they just love the costume. So I've had to kind of sometimes improvise responses back. But I love that like because we're not technically a panto but we kind of like are. I'm always like yeah, yeah. open to inter, in, uh, inter, 
Interaction. Sorry, what's the interacting with them? And yeah. so you, you do actually hook turns around and addresses the kids. Do they get a fright? <laughs> do they kind of go? I don't know if they get a you're fright. Not, so you're not a scary hook? <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know. <laughs> Text 5151, is Claire done a scary hook? <laughs> Exactly. That find out from me there, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I've got loads of texts in. <laughs> uh, here's a lovely one from Lara, L-A-R-A, mm. Lara in Galway. Worked with Claire as a very nervous 13-year-old um, with Druid Theatre. She yeah. was so supportive, warm and kind. The Aww. young performers in the cast who hadn't got a clue what we were at. And I've been so excited <laughs> to follow her success since Lara in Galway. Hi, Lara. <laughs> and then, hi, Brandon. Listening to Claire, isn't she amazing? So natural and such a talent. <laughs> I was the music teacher along with the team in Our Ladies Grove with Claire was in TY. <gasps> in Mrs. The TY Sloan, show. how are you? <laughs> <laughs> we're so proud of Claire. We're delighted when she came back to visit us in the school and gave great, inspiring talk to the students. Go, Claire. That, yeah, Dervla Sloan. Yes, thanks, Dervla. Mrs. Sloan, are you not supposed to be in class, Mrs. Sloan? Just saying, not ratting you out or anything, but yeah, are you not supposed to be at work right now? So, um, Kin is on BBC. That's right, yeah. We're airing on BBC now on Saturday. BBC One, half nine, absolutely amazing. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, and the response has been incredible. So, thank you all to the audience in the UK. My God, yeah. And what it's, you're hopefully going into season three. Yeah, we don't know yet. We don't know so, yet. Yeah, we'll and, find but this out, kind I'm of sure. production sharing really works to help mm. production move on. And, you know, Irish production is, is where it's at. And yeah. any sort of support is brilliant. So well done on Kin. Yeah. So what's next for you? Um, well, I made some lovely Irish independent films this year um, that I'm really proud of. And they'll probably release in the early bits of the year. I, I did a British indie as well. Um, and then a, a TV series. But I'm writing my next feature film as well. I'm developing that. So. What's it called? <laughs> well, as usual, it's just a working title. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll just park the name. Okay. But I did a short film that was a, a, a thing in prep for that called One Good Conversation. So maybe it'll have that title. I don't know. One good conversation. I, listen, yeah. if herself is anything to go by, it's going to be amazing. I'm very excited <laughs> to see it. So you get three days off over Christmas and, and you're working. We'll, well, we'll, if people want to find out if the gate is open tonight, it, it'll be on the website, of course. And Absolutely. there'll be a notification about that. We're not sure quite what's happening yet in yeah. that area of Dublin. The Peter Pan runs until? It runs until the 13th of January. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be there next week. Mm. Uh, hopefully all things going well. And uh, in the three days over Christmas, what do you do when you're off? Do you just <laughs> lie in a cool room and chill your limbs or what do you do? No, me and my whole family do a thing of going out on Christmas Eve for dinner. We go out for tapas. We go absolute opposite to Christmas on Christmas Eve. So is that on Christmas Day, we really appreciate um, the, the, the Christmas dinner. And then on Stevens' Day, I think I might be hanging out with... Um, family as well all day mostly just eating and drinking like everyone else but um, we have a matinee the day after Stephen's Day so I won't be too bad <laughs> Is Christmas in Dublin? Yeah Oh yeah Oh yeah, very good time. Oh yeah. very good yeah. Well, well I, I, I'll be waving at you from the audience behind all the little, the little hooks <laughs> I want to be a hook I'll Let me know when you're in and uh, I'll say hi after uh, Oh my goodness yeah, yeah please I would love that Okay listen good luck and uh, break a leg not good luck thank sorry you. break a leg and I can't wait to see the next movie uh, Claire Dunn thank you so much for coming in Thanks for having me 